Welcome back to What Would Jane Do? This time we had the good fortune to speak to the environmentalist and urbanist Alice Creasy, who's based in Edinburgh, Scotland. With the climate conference COP26 in Glasgow currently ongoing, we discussed the pressing matter of climate change and its relations to future urban life. We also discuss Alice's experience in starting a research collective and try to figure out exactly how large an allotment is. This and more on this eighth episode. Hi Alice, welcome to uh, What Would Jane Do? Good <laughs> to be here. Um, so hi, I'm Alice, I'm 26. I am from Edinburgh, I'm from Leith. Um, uh, after school, I worked as a teacher in the Dominican Republic for a year and then studied geography at Glasgow for my undergrad um, and most recently have just completed a master's in environmental sustainability at Edinburgh. Um, and I currently work for the Edinburgh Climate Change Institute as a researcher and for a local government kind of think tank um, as a kind of policy and membership officer. Um, yeah, and I'm I'm passionate about climate change and urban sustainability and, and nature and conservation. So it's really great to be here to be able to talk about those things. Yeah, and cities, we hope. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, it is quite different for us because we have previously spoken to um, what would, I guess what you would straight up say urbanists, but we felt it was very important to, of course, get your voice into it as well, because climate change is a very important topic in terms of the development of cities and how uh, we see our cities um, to be in the future, how they can function together with um, the human citizens living with it and, and other aspects of it. Um, and yes, you said you are from Edinburgh. So this is going to be really interesting because you are, as us, I imagine, a fan of Edinburgh, <laughs> but not as an outsider as us. So could you not describe your city from your perspective? Yeah, sure. So uh, yeah, I've lived in Edinburgh for um, the majority of, of my life. Um, and I don't think I really appreciated what an amazing city it was until I did move away. So <laughs> I, as I said, in the Dominican Republic and in Glasgow, and I spent quite a few um, kind of years in Canada as well. Uh, so yeah, it's just when you come back, it's such a, it feels very grounding to be able to come back to such a beautiful, a beautiful place. Um there's so much green space and it's a quite small city so you can walk around it quite easily um, and when you're from here it feels like you're kind of connected to everyone like you've been to school here and like you're you're likely to know people through friends of friends and friends you know so you feel quite connected to the city and, and the people um, which can be a good thing and a bad thing <laughs> you bump into um, but yeah so yeah it's a pretty cool cool city to grow up in and and I've come back to live here now which is lovely um I guess you know it's not all it's not all like roses I guess um it's quite an unequal city and um, so there there are very kind of very deprived areas and quite extreme areas of wealth Um, just an example I think it's got like the highest proportion of privately educated kids in the UK mm. um, is kind of an illustrator of that which I find quite shocking really and, and I think it's something that that impacts the dynamic of the city in, in a negative way um but yeah overall I feel very privileged to to have grown up here and, and to live here now it's a it's an amazing place did you always live in Leith 
yeah so yeah I was born in Leith and, and grew up there went to school there um yeah right next to the sea which is nice yeah because Edinburgh is really really nice because it's got so much green space it's right next to the Pentlands um, mm. but then it obviously a lot of it is the coastline as well so um yeah it's quite diverse in that in that way nice and what's quite particular with Leith as well is that they have gone through a lot of transformation as well in terms of urban space yeah um, yeah because when well when I when I was little it was quite a dodgy place like <laughs> like we didn't live in a like a dodgy like area or anything but it, it felt a little bit like risky to be out at night and stuff and now you know it's like totally gentrified it's the place to be um there are lots of like cool artisan coffee shops and <laughs> yeah little bakeries and stuff so it's gone through a, a massive transformation just over my lifetime um which has its pros and cons obviously mm-hmm. yeah definitely and and I mean I myself lived in Leith as well so I I saw it from a short perspective of coming in there for yeah. was it two years and I mean I fell in love with it but you you could see that type of uh, changes that happened um not only in its in its what's to say its surface or the landscape but the people there and and listening and um yeah hearing people's perspectives on it yeah uh, yeah and as and as you said you just was it a year ago that you graduated from your master's yeah, so I did my master's part-time over two years. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And worked at the same time. So, yeah, I felt, it didn't, and it was COVID as well when I graduated, so it kind of, it didn't feel like a, like a massive transition or anything. <laughs> yeah, I did graduate last year, apparently. So it must have happened a lot of things since then. I mean, not only um, trying to start up a career in the pandemic, but you have been doing a lot. I mean, you are in between two type of jobs you could say but you also started uh, similar to us a collective with some was it university friends yeah so it was people that I was on the master's with and then people that I subsequently met while working ah. so it's Embra collective is that the right way of saying so let us know more about that yeah so we set up Embra um I think it was May 2020 so just as the pandemic was kind of kicking off um and yeah, as I said, a lot of us worked in the kind of institutional climate governance space within the university. Um, and we set up Embra as a kind of a bit of an antidote to the, the institutional climate governance that we were seeing um, within that big organisation. Um, we want it to be a kind of inclusive platform where a diverse range of people can express their thoughts you know opinions experiences um in a range of different mediums so we've got um like places for people to write stuff long pieces short pieces informal blogs but then also a creative corner where people can paint um or illustrate or do any kind of creative like art around sustainability mm-hmm. um, so yes yeah, it's, it's hopefully a kind of a diverse platform where um, anybody who wants to talk about sustainability and their experiences um, with that issue can can come on and, and do that. And how would you say it has has it evolved as you were expecting it a year ago, or how does it look today? Yeah, it's, it's it has evolved like steadily over the last mm-hmm. year and a bit. 
Um, we've had quite a lot of interest from from different people, which has been great. And we've got quite active social media channels. Um, I think the most challenging thing for us, and I'm sure you guys can sympathise, is just keeping a group of people together and <laughs> time zones and who are all working full-time jobs and during a pandemic that could be quite difficult but when there are enough people um you can kind of share the labor um kind of equally among everybody and people can take breaks if they want to and yeah it's it's I mean it's it's a very informal thing none of us get paid to do it obviously and, and if somebody wants to take a break from it then they can take a break from it you know it's supposed to be about having fun and kind of making connections and stuff so it's not super serious <laughs> remember that <laughs> yeah but that's nice I think it's just nice to have like that output and at the same time as you may be a core group you do share it with others and try to invite just a discussion um, about it similar to us as well like we we set off this in collaboration with maybe one perspective or aim but it, it does evolve and and I mean for us it's mainly about also sticking together and and discuss things that we are are interested in so yeah definitely it's helpful to kind of maintain those friendships as well mm-hmm. platform for doing that um and to learn new skills you know like I didn't know anything about promoting a product I guess on on social media and monitoring those things and and kind of creating a website from scratch it's about yeah being able to learn those new skills as well as explore different aspects of sustainability that we weren't getting within our kind of more conventional careers, Mm. which has felt, yeah, quite satisfying, I guess. I was curious about the beginning of it. Like how did, how did all of you decide to come together and create the Embra Collective? So where is it? Three of us were working in the Edinburgh Climate Change Institute at the time. Um, and it was we so part of our jobs was to set up this climate commission in Edinburgh which was a group of ex independent experts um who would advise the Edinburgh City Council um on their climate change initi- initiatives um and we were kind of the minions just out of our masters like doing the admin basically um but we had quite a lot of kind of I guess, fresh ideas that weren't necessarily being heard, I don't think. And we kind of witnessed the creation of this group, which um, was not particularly diverse. And the individuals who were chosen to be on it weren't chosen in a very kind of inclusive um, way. Uh, So they were kind of picked based on people's personal connections, I guess. Mm -hmm. So yeah we found I don't know there were different aspects of that process that we found very problematic and then we were speaking to other people who had worked in who were who were in our masters and were working in sustainability and they were seeing the same things and so we were like why don't we create something that's trying to be a bit different to that. Can you tell the story behind the name just I've been really curious about that for a long time. So Embra is a colloquial name for Edinburgh Oh, ah, I have yeah. no idea. <laughs> and because a lot of us, we all met in Edinburgh, so we thought that that was a nice connection. Um, and also it's, it's it's a nice word and it sounds a bit like ember, like the kind of, yeah, which is, yeah, nice connotations as well. So mm-hmm. we had we had a whole load of different names and they're all... <laughs> 
it's a big deal choosing the name. Uh-huh. Oh, we know. Well, yes. <laughs> <laughs> we spent so much time trying to find something that translated across uh, three yeah. languages. <laughs> but we also, so, because I thought Embra was, I don't know, the Spanish word for female. Yeah. Well, there was that aspect of it too, because um, it is a kind of feminist collective. That's neat. Yeah. Then I just have to, we are of course curious how you even wanted to get into the field that you are in. Like, why did you choose to do what you do? <laughs> um, yeah, good question. Um, I guess something that you don't really, I don't really think about that often because kind of climate change, sustainability has been part of my life since I was really little. Like we've always been, like we grew up in, I grew up in a flat in quite an urban part of the city. So kind of green spaces were really special to me I guess like we mm-hmm. were lots of parks near us and we did go to them and my mum has an allotment so we spent a lot of time in that um and we used to go on kind of Scottish holidays as kids um yeah so there's kind of like that appreciation of nature and natural spaces within an urban context particularly was something that kind of influenced me from a very young age um, and then my dad's very kind of political and into um, the green movement um, and always has been. So, you know, we all we grew up vegetarian and that's always been part of our lives um, and yeah, different aspects like that. So I guess all those things came together when I did my geography degree at Glasgow and yeah. I specialised in, in environmental politics. I wrote my dissertation on oil pipelines and First Nation communities in Vancouver, where I did my year abroad. Um, yeah, and then I guess doing the master's at Edinburgh was kind of an, a next step because nobody employs you if you don't have a master's anymore. Um, <laughs> so it seemed like a, a reasonable one to choose. And yeah, here I am. Yeah. And I, if I don't miss Red, you have been part of a project that, it's actually looking at something called uh, the 20 minutes neighborhood in Edinburgh mm-hmm. and would yeah just kind of tell us more about that yeah so the 20 minute concept is the idea that everybody has their essential services within a 20 minute round trip of their house um of where they live so i guess it it there, it's complex and it varies from place to place but Things like a school, a doctor, a pharmacy, an affordable place to buy your food, a green space, um, are all, and local public transport systems are all within walking distance, 20 minutes of your house. And it's a concept that really took off during the pandemic when everybody was stuck at home. Mm. Um, And yes, and over the past year and a half, it's been implemented in across the world, really. Paris has taken the lead in most recent years but places like Melbourne and Portland um, have been doing it for have kind of institutionalized it for for you know decades I guess a long time um but yeah for to me it's a it's is the kind of institutionalization of Jane Jacobs ideas really yeah it's that creation of thriving neighborhoods um where people have a, a, a community and facilities 
and they feel safe and comfortable and, and proud of the places of that they live in. Um, and it's trying to translate all those things into local government policy, which um, is challenging and which is what we found over the last year. So the Scottish government in 2020 said that all local authorities in Scotland had to implement 20 minute policy um, like as as standard across planning. Mm-hmm. And so Edinburgh City Council have been trying to do that with the help of the university um, how would you say it's going? Um, it's going slowly, mm-hmm. as things in local government tend to. Um, uh, yeah, it's. I guess Edinburgh is a difficult one because a lot of it is a 20-minute neighbourhood because it is an old city. Mm. That's how cities have always been designed, you know, like a collection of neighbourhoods where people could walk in between. Um, but there are places on the outskirts which are more kind of contemporary, built in the 60s and 70s when the car was king and and they're not connected in those ways so it definitely did there is space to expand it and make places better using this concept um I guess from my perspective on the outside it looks like a great idea and I think that's why it's caught a lot of people's attention because hmm. it sounds great you know 20 minute neighborhood like who wouldn't want that and it is a great idea but when you read into it and you when you work with a local authority who's trying to implement it you realize that it's a deceptively complicated concept, um, like 20 minutes for who? 20 minutes for me, 20 minutes for someone in a wheelchair. Yeah. Someone pushing a buggy. Like, what does that mean for different people? It doesn't really accommodate that difference, um, just in the kind of catchphrase. And then and then working with a local authority who don't have the data that you need to be able to monitor and map and measure what that looks like on the ground. Um, you know, data in local authorities are spread across numerous different departments, across numerous institutions within a city, different sectors. Um, so trying to bring all that together on a, an increasingly limited budget um, is really hard. And yeah, and then things like, will creating nicer neighbourhoods accelerate gentrification in certain areas? Will mm. it make house prices go up? Will it um, displace communities? So there are lots of issues with it, I guess. And it's only when you scratch the surface and, and try and work those things through in a practical context that you really kind of appreciate them. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's like you say, it's, it sounds very catchy, 20 minutes neighbourhood. And I think as someone, as you say yourself, being grown up in Central and uh, or any urban, take it for granted somehow, but then you have these generations of different kinds of city development and these trends that constantly change plus the the rural what does account for them there is a lot of of factors and and levels that has to be considered and integrated and and these projects are are never going to be be easy but it's at least I would say from personal um um perspective it, it sounds at least nice that it's on on the discussion board if you say or at least even further than that um yeah it's it's great that these things are are being talked about yeah the high level within institutions and I think in Edinburgh and I don't know what's happening other places but I imagine it's similar the 20 minute neighborhood encompasses so many things so it encompasses sustainability and kind of low carbon neighborhoods and all those things but it also 
encompasses education mm. and detail and all those different things. And I think it gives op- local governments opportunities to work across different departments and bring and mm. try and tackle those silos, um, which are an issue. Um, so it, more than a planning framework, I think it could be a, a, a nice mechanism to kind of help governance practices at a local level. Um, because I think if you if you have it as a kind of forward-facing planning framework, the likelihood is that citizens will use it as a stick to beat local government with, which <laughs> a lot of councils just don't need. Like that's all they get, um, because it does vary from pe- like what's an essential service to me is very different to somebody else, mm. and and what's a twenty-minute walk for me is very different for someone else. So having those kind of concrete labels on it give people a stick yeah a stick to beat councils with because it doesn't fit um their specific needs but as a governance mechanism I think it can be really useful yeah definitely and and yeah as you say like it's automatically covering so many things in terms of social sustainability and environmental sustainability but I definitely see that there is going to be question marks and there are question marks that still needs to be covered but I mean, also then, so that's on a planning uh, government level, if you want to say, but you as a, for us, expert now, uh, what would you say an urban citizen could do to themselves become more sustainably? How could they live more sustainably? Um, yeah, it's a good question. Uh, I guess on an individual level, all the classic things like eating a more plant-based diet, avoiding flights, taking active travel options where possible, investing in double glazing, retrofitting your house. All those things are really important for an individual to be able to do. But I think it's also important to not put it on an individual to, to do those things. Like it's not my responsibility to like retrofit my entire house when I don't, I don't, earn enough to be able to do that and I shouldn't feel guilty that that's the case um so I think doing those things as far as you can within the resources that you have but then recognizing that we need to act together as a collective to lobby people whose responsibility is to do those things um to kind of create that change I guess um from my perspective I guess I I do try and live as sustainably as possible I guess when you work in this sphere it's hard to live with yourself if you do those things but also you know it can be it's important to recognize that it's not all on you um Mm -hmm. as an individual to to fix the world um and that working together collectively is the most important thing and I think for me it's like it's been nice to 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 live ethically but then also use those things to, to start conversations with people hmm. it's, you know there's no I don't it doesn't matter if someone else changes their lifestyle but it's, it's nice it's a good kind of conversation starter a lot of the time and to, to kind of create bridges and and dialogue around the issue of sustainability and um, it's yeah quite a useful mechanism I I think I can see as a, as a problem is that for some it may feel overwhelming isn't it? It's, it's kind of a thing that we have to deal with soon. And as we can do certain things as individuals, I, I like that you say that it's it's not in the end up to the individual, like we have to to work together and 
any little piece we can do is it's always something isn't it yeah yeah and I guess as individuals you we do have if we act collectively like huge power in terms of mm. as as consumers more than anything else like we can go on demos and write to your MP but as consumers you have huge power to make ethical choices within the limitations of your resources and budget and whatever else um but yeah I think it's a kind of it's a dangerous narrative to to blame individuals for the crisis that we're living through this is kind of going back to the Ember Collective, but I wanted to ask how you find the people to um, contribute to the site and your interviews and things like that. Um, so a lot of it's on social media. We like, we put out posts asking for new writers and we also approach people that we, that we follow. Um, and, you know, if we see an interview on TV with someone who looks really cool, we will reach out to them and yeah, it's just kind of, it's on social media and then word of mouth um, and yeah, our, our own connections. Yeah. Is there an interview that you've done that sticks out to you or was particularly um, inspiring to you? And um, the most recent one I did was with the allotment officer in Edinburgh, which I just think would be the best job. It'd be so great. Like, <laughs> I feel very passionate about urban agriculture and I just think having their job would just be really great um but no I think yeah it was a great interview it was good to talk to them um they said something interesting about the majority of plot holders it's kind of this been this transition so in the past it was all these old boys having plots on the allotment and it was quite a male environment um mm. and just over the last kind of 10 years he says it's become much more female he said the majority of of plot holders and now women um and I, I think that's like a really interesting transition over the last kind of 10 20 years and um, the kind of urban agriculture has pivoted so that it's it's more kind of female orientated which is really cool that's interesting is it still a long queues to that because <laughs> I remember I wanted to sign up and it was kind of impossible it's insane and I think particularly over the pandemic um mm. Have just yeah been signing up all over the place. Um, he said that like popular plots in Edinburgh, you'd have to wait twenty years. Oh wow! Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. can get a rental flat before that. <laughs> yeah. Do yeah. people do people share allotments or like sub let their <laughs> black market? <laughs> yeah, yeah, people do. I think um, like my mum shares. It was a full plot and she shares half with another woman that we met through when me and my sister were at school um so yeah it's it's yeah people do it, and they've been split up a lot of the plots are now like as people who've had them for years and years and years are dying essentially the yeah. council's taking back the plots and splitting them into smaller sections yeah. so they can fit more but the waiting lists are crazy and edinburgh is a small city like places like london have waiting lists of 50 to 100 years which is wow. not very realistic yeah wow. I just that concept of uh, elopement how do we call it um I had never heard of that before but I wanted to ask you this is another question not the first one but I wanted to ask you where are they located in, in the city because I don't remember seeing them 
Yeah, there there are lots of plots across Edinburgh. Some of them are quite small. Um, but yeah, there are, I think, well, there must be more than 15 sites across Edinburgh. Um, and yeah, they're, they're usually, they've got a fence around them and plot holders have a key to the gate. Um, so, you know, people can't just walk through. But yeah, there, there are a lot of, yeah, there are loads of places across Edinburgh, but you may, yeah, maybe you wouldn't necessarily notice them. Um, yeah, maybe the fence and, and they, they don't, I mean, they blend, they're usually in green spaces anyway. So it's not like they're just kind of in the middle of two buildings. They're usually kind of part of a park or okay. a green space. Yeah. And the other question is, I was just referring back to when you were living in Leith. I think you're still living there. Just how did it feel to live in a place that was going through gentrification? Like from your perspective, from you living there, growing up there, how was the experience? Um, I guess for me, it was a positive experience because like I lived in my parents' flat, which they own. So there were no danger of being, of not being able to afford the rent and mm -hmm. being displaced as a result. So personally it was a overall a positive experience in the sense that I could go to a coffee shop with my friends where there wasn't one before and like the streets were nicer to walk along a lot of the times you felt a bit safer and um, walking at night and um, there were a lot more young people because it is still cheaper than a lot of parts of Edinburgh so there were more young people around um, and kind of cooler things happening um yeah so yes personally I wasn't impacted negatively by it but I think you there was a lot of anger in the community around certain developments that were happening particularly on Leith Walk there was a big um development plan there was student housing that would have knocked down um a load of shops Uh, and kind of historic shop fronts and, and built student housing and there was a huge huge massive protest around that which I was part of um, which I, they didn't end up happening in the end luckily it was successful for now um, so yeah so I did see that side of it as well and I had friends from school whose parents were renting flats who were getting increasingly worried that they wouldn't be able to afford the flat and they'd have to You'd have to move so kind of second hand I did see those those things happening. Do you think that has influenced the work that you're doing now or your path professionally? Yeah I think it's probably influenced my interest in kind of urbanism um, and and gentrification more more broadly. Yeah so we of course also have to ask you as we do with all our interviewees is what is your favorite space in your city? Um, well, I've talked about it already. I think it's probably my mum's allotment. <laughs> yeah, which is, uh, yeah, I thought I thought about that question quite a lot. There are so many nice places in Edinburgh. It's hard to choose. Mm. Um, the view from Blackford Hill came a close second, but I think <laughs> personal connection, the allotment has like influenced me as a as a person a lot over my life. Um, and I know that it's a space that my mom and my dad really enjoy going to. And it's, yeah, it's just been part of my life 
forever really um and it's been kind of a we yeah obviously we grew up in a in a flat and didn't have a garden so having that kind of almost private green space was felt like a real treat and a real privilege and to be able to grow food there um was really educational and and informative uh, for me growing up and yeah and then I guess over Covid as well it was really lovely to be able to go down there and when the parks were all really full of people and the pavements were, were kind of chock-a-block it was nice to go down there and have some quiet and um, and to be within a community because it is a community like you're, you're right next to other plot holders and you can have a chat over the fence but it's not super kind of intense and it's kind of more loose loose community and people recognize that you need you might need a bit of space and or whatever <laughs> or you might need a chat and yeah and um, so yeah the allotment is probably my favorite place in Edinburgh. Since we're audio would you mind describing it a little bit just like yeah. the um, aspect of it? Yeah so it's in a place called Warriston in it's not actually in Leith it's more kind of towards Trinity um, and there's quite a steep slope down into the main parking area and our allotment is I guess fairly close to the main entrance and uh, we've got an old shed which really needs to be rebuilt and is coming a slight safety hazard at this point <laughs> survive another winter so um, yeah we should do that at some point this year um, and then yeah, as I said, my mum's got one half of a, quite a big plot. Um, yeah, and we've got fruit bushes and apple trees and then lots of space for, for vegetables. And one side of it borders a path that goes all the way along the side of, of a lot of plots. And then the other side is, is right onto a number of different other people's plots. Yeah. How, how big is the allotment? Oh, I don't know how to <laughs> I don't know how big I'm not sure how to I, I the the reason I ask I meant like when you say fruit bushes and apple trees like uh, uh, a lot of plots in the U.S. are really small just kind of like raised beds that you might put in your backyard um, and then they just kind of replicate them in parks or public spaces and like I feel may, like maybe they're the size of like a, a mattress you know, like not, not very, not very large at all. Like you can, you know, plant some vegetables and stuff, but hearing an apple tree, I'm like, wow, you must have <laughs> a fair amount of space. Yeah. It's probably the size of four to six, like car parking spaces, maybe six car okay. spaces, um, long and then two across. Okay. Um, so yeah, it's fairly big. It sounds so lovely. I have to say your description early as well how you like to go there it sounds like you early on had a very old soul <laughs> yeah. yeah I mean basically I'm a 75 year old woman <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you've gotten done to that <laughs> oh it sounds lovely and yeah we're actually just coming to an end um we have one more question that we of course want to cover as well and that is what you um what what is giving you hope right now about your city? Um, there's a pretty big climate movement in Edinburgh, um, probably not quite so big as in as in Glasgow, but it's it's quite sizable. 
Um, and I've been on quite a few climate demos, protests, uh, where they've been an amazing, an amazing turnout, and and they've been inspired by the Fridays for Future movement, mm. which has been really great to see, like a whole load of young people getting together and and kind of being proactive and, and caring about the environment and trying to create change. Um, so I guess more recently that's been very inspiring because I think particularly working from home and working in this field, it can be, I mean, it can just be depressing, like very isolating. You're on your own and you're dealing with like really scary, challenging subjects and you can feel very helpless. And during COVID, you've not been able to go out and kind of let off steam and see other people and get that perspective. So being able to go on um, protests again and, and get together with a group of other young people, it's it's been heartening to remember that I'm not on my own <laughs> other people care too um yeah and the, and I know that in Edinburgh there are a number of amazing community groups and grassroots um movements who which are which are trying to create change and and, and conversations around things like the 20-minute neighborhood and um yeah in, increasing the number of of allotment plots for example increasing green spaces and and reducing emissions within the city are all are all positive conversations and yeah. that's great and then also the um, this is not edinburgh but the climate meeting coming up in glasgow of course oh, are God. you planning to go uh yeah i mean i'm not going to the main cop event but i might go to some fringe protest events at some point oh <laughs> <laughs> that sounds great that was actually just it. Yeah, it was really lovely hearing your perspective and just nice to to meet you and hear about what you're doing in Edinburgh. Well, it's been lovely to speak to you all and see you all again. I don't know much how you guys see on the news at the moment, uh, but here in Europe, of course, the whole COP26 conference in Glasgow is everywhere. And I feel it's great that we actually have this conversation with Alice and we're going to release it now just uh, with that in mind. What do you guys think? What What did you feel after this uh, this interview with Alice? Yeah, I was really glad to bring in uh, that perspective. You know, I think sustainability is kind of woven all throughout our conversations about urbanism and cities and urban design, but it was really nice to talk to someone who's directly in that field um, and then you know representing that in conversation about urbanism um, yeah I really enjoyed her perspective this shows that you don't need only one profession to build an urban environment oh no uh, you need like multiple to, m- multiple professions to do it mm. yeah so I feel like we interviewing her and but the project she's working on and her interest, I mean, she's showing us that. Yeah, I think the 20-minute city conversation is a perfect example of that. How, mm. you know, that's a, a planning concept, but really it's touching on, you know, transportation, health, education, like access to shops and, and the things you need to, you know, fill your life. Um, like... It, it's really bringing in a lot of different things all together and, you know, transcends just a, a, a planning 
perspective. Definitely. And I mean, that's why I also really like her when we brought in the conversation of gentrification and in particular then in her area of Leith that she lives in Edinburgh and how that has transformed through the years she's lived there and what it meant, what it means to her in terms of her age, like that, what part that did in her grown up years and to her family living situation. And then when she was comparing it to like friends who maybe had it much tougher because that is what happens i mean you within this concept then 20 minutes neighborhoods or any kind of urban projects it comes with change and it comes with to make something better but that also means that you're either pushing away old habits old rituals old cultures in that area you maybe push out certain people out of it because things change in the area and it's such a such a hard thing to not come across I feel or not happen if you say I mean <laughs> I feel like like in abstract the idea of the 20 minute city is such an ideal an ideal project you know this yeah. 20 minute city where you can walk everywhere but as you're saying what does the 20 minute entails like 20 minutes for whom and what are the consequences of having a 20 minute city what changes does it have in the in the dynamics of a neighborhood and a, or a sector within a city. Mm. Yeah. I think Maybe. like, yeah. Yeah. I think like gentrification is always negative because it means that it is pushing people out. So, you know, whether or not you experience the negative, then like whether or not you experience gentrification in a negative way, doesn't mean that it's not bad but I think Mm. the question is more of like can you implement strategies like a 20-minute city without producing gentrification and actually displacing people within the neighborhood Mm. and I think that's where it's important to look at like the different like users and range of people living within the neighborhood so like when she mentioned you know is it 20 minutes for for me walking is it 20 minutes in a wheelchair or is it 20 minutes with someone pushing a buggy like you know it's not just people on their feet like using the sidewalks it's also like you know different forms of mobility that you have to um account for and again like in that type of concept as well we can't forget how different every city in the world is as well like and how suitable this would be i think is it's optimal for a place like edinburgh who's not already almost is like a 20 minutes neighborhood but how does it work in cities with a lot of you know cars or like a car dominated city or just yeah, how will that work in mega a, cities in a, yeah cities yeah. with urban sprawl would that even be possible <laughs> I mean, I guess you would have to adapt it, isn't it? Same as we've discussed before in terms of placemaking. You you would have to have to find a type of model that would suit to that area. But I guess you can always be inspired, though, can't you? You can have a some sort of utopia and then try to reach for it. <laughs> I would love for American cities to be more walkable and more, you know, because really all the 20-minute city is is a new like term and slogan and way of thinking about walkability and usability um, that, and and she kind of mentioned that, you know, the 20 minute city is just a repackaging of like the things that Jane Jacobs talks about and the things Mm. that we've been talking about in urbanism for 
uh, I guess, really centuries. (laughs) (laughs) But um, yeah, I I think that in car-dominated spaces, it's definitely a harder um, reorientation, you know? Yeah. Yeah, another part of the of this interview that I will take with me is our conversation about climate anxiety because I feel that is so for me relevant every day. Like, I mean, particularly now with the, with with the conference in Glasgow and the news just overflowing of it, and I think within our field as well, like it's such a relevant, so important thing, and you can see certain solutions that's what we have to do. But then when you come down to like, oh, what can I do? It's always so hard to know. How do you guys felt? How did you feel about the tips and and our conversation about it? Yeah, I appreciate, you know, there's always, you can always do something. But then the fact that it's it's not just up to an individual to um, save our planet. (laughs) Um, You know, recognizing that collective action is ultimately the most important thing. And also the fact that, yeah, just not beating yourself up about it, and you know, oh, like, I feel that's such it's so easier to say than done. No. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Sure. <laughs> I actually felt like seen in a way, just understanding that that I'm not alone in feeling this anxiety. Mm. It's, it's constant, like you said. This is like daily for me. I'm going to be honest, I think it's good as well. We have to feel guilt or else we're not going to have any action in this. Mm-hmm. But it's not but, good or it's always not good when it's just overflowing and becomes, as we but, say, anxiety. Yeah, and we're always talking about this collective action. And I feel like a lot of people are taking like steps towards a more sustainable way of life. But what I've taken out of this <clears throat> whole COP26 thing is that it's not it doesn't only depend on on us no and it's at the end uh, i'm gonna say this but it's just capitalism it's <laughs> at both here <laughs> yeah i mean if you if you see uh the the sectors that produce the most i don't know carbon pollution, emissions yeah carbon emissions i mean construction is one of them mm. And we, like, as an architect, I know that there are many architects working towards improving this this sector. But what about the others? What about, I don't know, I don't know, it's stressful. It is. It makes me mad. And I'm going to say this, and it might be something that is controversial, but countries in the South are most affected by the countries in the North. Mm-hmm. Oh, but that's clear. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's like this combination of, of being anxious all the time because this is happening, and you can see changes in in like weather patterns here in, in where I live. But also, is this getting mad because bigger corporations are not doing enough and that they're just doing the blah blah blah? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> But also, as as I think, like as a consumer as well, that we don't understand. Did we have that conversation? Like the power of the consumer as well. I don't think we understand how much we could actually affect on that as well. Like mm-hmm. if we say boycotted 
a brand or boycotted a product or boycotted just buying certain things like I think we could make a great collective action there I appreciated her kind of recognizing that um you know do what you can but within your means because yeah you know it it shouldn't fall on the individual to you know fix everything and like especially if you're lower income or something and you can't manage certain things like 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 retrofitting your house and things like that exactly there's lots of very easy like low-cost things that are very sustainable shifts that you can make or free options you know but yeah I, I appreciated her bringing that into the conversation as well definitely we all start from different different um possibilities don't we yeah Thanks for listening to What Would Jane Do? Tune in next time as we continue to explore women in cities and urban design. What Would Jane Do? is hosted by me, Caitlin Foote, Kaisa Leon Lilja, and Stefania de Pasarna. Together, we make up Collectivo Design Group. You can find us at Collectivo.com, on Instagram at Collectivo Design, and on Twitter at Collectivo DG. And that's Collectivo with a K.